This morning, I was walking down the stairs to my computer and I was wondering to myself, why do small multifamily properties tend to transact at a lower price per square foot than larger multifamily properties? That's funny because as I was walking down the stairs this morning, I was wondering to myself if there was any correlation between per square foot transaction price and ongoing affordability. Whoa, really? Uh, no, not really. Uh, actually, I was singing some Warren Zevon under my breath and wondering if there was uh, any coffee already made. Uh, but when I was done with that, then I started thinking about small multifamily properties. Well, I'm glad you got around to it eventually, because on today's episode, we're going to talk about both our questions and more, much more. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. One of the most important and exciting aspects of the rental market is small properties. While we've been in this business for some time, from a research perspective, there's still a lot to dig into. A lot of trends that warrant study, and there's even some concern that these properties, which tend to remain affordable even without regulatory agreements, may become subject to repositioning strategies that would threaten their long-term affordability. To talk about all of that with us today, we are joined by Andrew Jakobovics, Vice President for Policy Development at Enterprise Community Partners. Andrew, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Andrew, you've been doing this work uh, recently on small multifamily properties, which is an interesting part of the market. How did you get into that area of study? Well, we've been looking at affordability for quite some time. We've been looking at the rental market overall. One of the things that really jumped out at us was the fact that so much of the housing stock uh, and a substantial amount of the affordable stock um, is really in these smaller properties. And by these small properties, we mean anything from uh, two units in a property up to 49 units in a property. The sort of for ease of, of counting these sorts of things, that's the way the census breaks it out. Uh, every lumps together everything 50 plus. Uh, with a couple of fine gradations under 50. Um, so we've really been looking at the two plus uh, to 49. And from a financing perspective, two, three, and four unit properties move through the single family channels while everything five and larger goes uh, through multifamily. So it, it kind of does span um, two sort of different financing systems, which is also another kind of interesting um, wrinkle in trying to analyze uh, some of the, the data. But overall, um, it's, a, it's a, sub, a subset of the market that is um, not really well understood. And yet, when you start looking at some of the data that's available from things like the American Community Survey, the American Housing Survey, um, you really see that it, it's a, actually the plurality of the rental stock uh, is in this uh, 2 to 49 unit space. So as you say, this is a, this is a large part of the market. It's an, it's an important part of the market. Um, it hasn't been studied much. I think a lot of the drivers of that is that there's a lack of data in this space, but you were able to find some. Uh, yeah, we actually had access to the originally DataQuick and now CoreLogic da transaction data um, at the parcel level. So we've got sort of transaction histories going back to, depends on the, the geography being studied, at least uh, the early 2000s uh, and in some places going back to the the late 1980s. Um, and so one of the things that we did in, in some research um, was look at uh, small multifamily properties in 11 counties. Uh, these are generally relatively large counties. Uh, the central county, for particular MSAs, we looked at LA, Chicago, Phoenix, Miami, uh, Las Vegas, Seattle, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, uh, Minneapolis, Atlanta, and Denver. Um, and we looked at the um, transaction prices for um, all uh, 
properties uh, that are used as rental. So single family properties we looked at um, that, again, rental or ownership in, the, in that case, um, up through large multifamily 50 plus buildings. Um, and we looked across the, the transaction to understand how the uh, smaller properties transact relative to either single family prices um, or relative to large multifamily properties um, on a per square foot basis. And one of the things that we found is that these small properties, again, defined as sort of two to 49 units, comparing the sort of smaller set of properties, smaller properties within that uh, to the single family properties, and then comparing the larger uh, or medium-sized multifamily to uh, the large multifamily properties, uh, and found that um, even after you account for um, neighborhood differences, um, that uh, there's still a substantial um, pricing differential between uh, these smaller properties and either the single family um, when you compare to the to the two for the two to fours um, and then five to 49 when you compare to the 50 plus um, there's sort of across all of those metros the transaction discount is about 13 percent uh, relative um, to the single family homes and, and pretty similar for for large multifamily as well uh, neighborhood characteristics explain almost half the difference, um, so which leaves us with about half, a little over half of the difference, uh, sort of unexplained by anything other than the fact that the, this particular property type um, seems to um, be less expensive. There's something inherent in small and medium multifamily properties um, that, that has a, a pricing discount. In that research, have you started to get a sense of what uh, might be driving that, you know, with the, the property size and, and all that, you know, beyond the neighborhood? So I think there are sort of a couple of, of avenues that we're sort of pursuing. Um, one is that just operationally, um, it's harder to do. Um, you sort of think about the, um, you know, just the simple fact of a vacancy, for example, um, would have an impact on your um, overall returns. Uh, you know, if it's a two-unit property and one unit's vacant, right, that's 50% of the, the expected income not coming in. Um, you know, if it's a 50 unit property um, and one unit's vacant, it's 2%, right? And at, at 100 units, it's 1%, right? So the, this, the scale of, of, you know, sort of vacancy and turn costs is going to be, is very, very, very different. Um, operationally, we also know that, um, you know, some of the, just the economies of scale uh, just aren't there in um, small properties the way they are in large properties. Um, the ownership patterns actually are, are quite, quite different. Um, the at least relative to large multifamily, where you have uh, considerable shares of ownership, well in excess of, of you know 50%. When you get up to very large properties of 150 units or more, it's two thirds of the owners are LLPs, LLCs, and the like, um, compared to um, individual investors or trustees um, that own at least three quarters of the the small stock. Um, in the, in that regard, actually, it's interesting because the the ownership patterns for um, rental properties, single family rentals are actually look very, very similar to those for two to fours. Both are about that sort of that three quarter number. As you get larger um, the sh in the, the building size, the, the share of, of individual owners goes down. But one of the things that we, we typically know sort of this is referred to, you know, kind of like the mom and pops uh, who may not be accounting for, you know, sweat equity in the sort of their own time uh, being put into management um, or repairs. Uh, the way that a uh, a corporation, an LLP, an LLC, a REIT, et cetera, um, are going to be accounting for, um, you know, really all of the costs that go into into owning and managing and maintaining those properties. Uh, and then, the, you know, the, the last sort of possibility um, is that there's something just different about the financing. Again, sort of that 
one, sort of two to four versus five and above, um, whether there are some, some um, pricing distinctions that sort of flow in uh, as a result of uh, access to capital, um, even though that, you know, sort of two to fours look a lot like ones in terms of financing, um, one of the things that we're, we're interested in finding out and looking down the roads, understand whether there's sort of some, some breaks also that happen between four and five um, in terms of pricing to understand whether by moving through different financing channels and the availability of capital um, is also um, reducing the, the underlying value of the asset just because knowing that the, the market might be thinner, uh, et cetera. But understanding all of that really does flow into ensuring that these properties are able to remain viable um, over the long term, because one of the things that we also know um, is that these smaller properties also tend to rent much more affordably. Um, so even though we don't have a tight link between asset pricing, transaction prices, and the um, the rents um, that are actually commanded in a particular building, uh, overall as a sector, we do know that um, small properties tend to be much more affordable, and um, from other data sets, we also know that they also tend to be home to the lowest income uh, families. So Andrew, there's something in there that, that struck me as maybe a little bit counterintuitive on the surface, uh, which is you talked about, you, know, you don't have the economy of scale. You talked about, uh, you know, there's sort of greater impact of vacancies on the property. So to me, those things sound like, um, you know, without economy of scale, it should be a little bit more expensive. A rent should be a little bit higher in these uh properties, but you're finding the opposite. We are finding the opposite. And I think that one of the reasons why um, is that, um, again, I think the ownership is really the key to a lot of this. And that's actually where we're doing a lot of our, our research now is really trying to understand who owns these properties um, and what their motivations might be. Um, and I think, you know, just from, you know, sort of more anecdotal evidence seems to be that um, mom and pops are just not necessarily as sophisticated, that their sort of overall business model is such um, that their approach is really about stability in a lot of cases rather than profit maximization. And so rather than even in rising markets, really trying to push rents um, and sort of encourage turn to get, you know, the next tenant in paying, you know, a little bit more, um, for them, the value of the stability seems to be important. And so if you've got a good tenant who doesn't cause problems, who is paying rent on time, that's worth far more than the, you know, the risk um, of, you know, an extended vacancy and things like that, um, and possibly getting a new tenant in who is, you know, less accommodating um, than the, the current tenant. So I think kind of the, the scale of ownership um, is something that's really, really interesting and really important and one that we don't really know uh, as much about as we might want to. Um, and we started sort of digging in in a number of, of cities across the country to really understand um, who owns which properties, what's their relationship to the properties, right? What's their scale of ownership? You know, or do they own uh, in their own neighborhood? Um, do they own in a couple of neighborhoods across the city? Do they themselves um, where they, you know, did they formally own in a particular, live in a particular property and then move to a new property, kept the old property to rent um, out uh, for additional income. Uh, and so their relationship is, you know, kind of a legacy relationship with those properties as opposed to kind of an, really an active real estate investment strategy, um, you know, that where they're growing their portfolio over time. All of that sort of flows in 
uh, to understanding what their motivations might be, which also then sort of opens the door to thinking about ways to ensure that these properties remain affordable um, over the the long term. A lot of these properties are, are older. Um, we haven't built a lot of small multifamily properties in this country um, in about 30 years, um, even a little bit more. Um, and so a lot of these properties, you know, the bulk of these properties were built in the 1970s um, and before. And so you're really talking about properties that are, are aging. Um, and some of the affordability is a function of age. Um, again, even after accounting for, for age, uh, we do see um, that this pricing differential uh, remains intact. But, um, you know, that age also means that there are likely deferred needs, maintenance needs, and things like that. Um, it's not clear where that capital might come in um, to keep those properties habitable over the long term. And so the, there's real concern that as these properties continue to age, right, it's the, the you know, time always marches forward. Um, and so, you know, as these properties continue to age, I think there's there's real challenge to making sure that they remain a viable part of the stock. I mean, a lot there's obviously a lot of focus on um, upgrades. Uh, gentrification is obviously a, a hot topic these days. Um, but even so, um, you know, there was a study a number of years ago that Rand had done that basically shows that we lose about three times as many properties annually to deterioration than we do to, to upgrading. Um, and I think that's a real uh, persistent challenge in a lot of markets across the country. And as you as you speak about um, all, all these findings, and, and you just mentioned that uh, uh, how things might differ across the country, you you were able to look at this in a number of different markets. Um, can you, can you speak to what what differences you did find, or what markets you were in? Sure. Um, so one of the interesting things, just in general, is just the nature of the stock itself looks different in different markets. So if you kind of go up to the Northeast, um, one of the things that you know the sort of small multifamily stock is largely in that two to four unit space. Um, you know, tr sort of triple deckers throughout Boston is sort of a, a good kind of archetype to kind of keep in mind. As you sort of head uh, both south and west, it kind of tracks nicely with kind of the growth of the country. Uh, the overall size on average of these properties um, rises uh, to the point where by the time you get out to uh, kind of some of the Sunbelt cities, the places that grew, um, really kind of into their own uh, in the automobile era, as opposed to the streetcar era or the, you know, the horse-drawn cart era, um, you do get larger properties. Again, I think this has to do with um, the sophistication of the, the production processes, the financing, et cetera. Um, but you do look at, uh, you do see a lot more um, concentration within that sort of two to 49 unit space um, in Los Angeles and Phoenix, uh, Miami, um, almost mirroring, not quite to the same extent um, as the large multifamily patterns, um, where again, you also have um, a lot more larger properties in, in those places uh, as well. So there's definitely sort of a strong regional um, flavor. And that's one of the, I think one of the challenges when thinking about some of the financing needs for these smaller properties that I think it's gonna be difficult to kind of come up with a one size fits all um, financing solution, either for acquisition or for rehab um, at these properties, just because the scale um, of these properties and the ownership capacity is gonna look very, very different in different uh, metros across the country. So did you see any uh, difference in, in uh, ownership type across the country? So we didn't drill down uh, into ownership that way um, in enough places just yet. Uh, for this particular research that, that I've been that I've been talking about, one of the things that we we have looked at um, is that there are, um, in addition to um, sort of 
ownership concentrations in different markets. Um, the other, I think, important factor, and this plays out a little bit differently in, in a couple of the different markets that we've looked at, uh, is the management patterns. And so there's, you know, again, depending on the nature of the ownership, when you've got, you know, sort of large scale REITs and, and, and kind of larger corporate players who own across multiple markets, right, they, they tend to, to own and manage uh, in their own name. But when you do have smaller owners of some of these smaller properties, um, sometimes they are managing for themselves. Sometimes they are managing um, multiple properties. Sometimes they are just hiring a management company who owns on behalf of, you know, sort of a suite of owners, um, irrespective of, you know, kind of those ownership interests. And so um, depending on the market, sometimes we're finding that the, the management company is actually sort of the key potentially to kind of unlocking some of these these patterns um, and opportunities around maintaining affordability rather than um, directly transacting or engaging around ownership per se. Now, that, that's an interesting point. Um, and and uh, I'm curious, uh, in your research to date, have you seen uh, some patterns in the property management and their practices? So um, we did some preliminary work looking at Denver, for example, and there it seems to be that um, Again, while ownership of these smaller properties tends to be relatively diffuse, um, there are a number of um, mid-sized managers who seem to um, kind of keep popping up in a lot of the the property record data um, in terms of where the you know the the tax tax info and stuff like that is sent, um, and so that sort of seems to be kind of a consolidation point for um, some of these kinds of properties in a way that. Um, you know, for example, in Cleveland, um, we didn't see the same sort of concentration on the management side. It seems to be a lot of um, just sort of self-managed um, and centrally uh, owned uh, portfolios for these for these smaller properties. Again, the the scale of the ownership is a little bit different, and the scale of those properties are a little bit different. In Cleveland, there's a lot again, sort of these uh, on the smaller side. Um, not the same way we saw in Denver. Denver, it's a little bit, the properties on average are a little bit larger, um, again, which might lead to some some difference in um, the kind of owner's need or feel that they need to, to bring on management, right? When you're dealing with, you know, 20 unit properties, um, also a lot of places mandate having an on-site property manager. So some of the, the kind of regulation around ownership is going to vary across place, which I think also flows into um, the professionalization of some of the management in some ways. And as as you say, you were able to look at these properties um, going back as far as 2000. I think when people think of affordability and they think of kind of the older properties that you're looking at, that they would think that there would be a filtering where they started, they may um, have not been um, affordable to start out with, but moved to become more affordable. Are you able to get any feel for that in your work? So we didn't specifically look at the question of filtering, although we did factor in um, sort of property age. Um, but a lot of these smaller properties just are older, and so they're not necessarily, um, you know, sort of directly competing um, with new construction, particularly you know, sort of large multifamily construction, um, where which is where most of the new construction has gone. It's sort of overwhelmingly, um, you know, 50 plus units. So um, from that perspective, you know, I mean, age is a factor, um, but given the age of these properties, the you know, sort of the filtering that sort of one would have expected to have happened, I think, is already baked into the pricing 
um, to some degree, just because these things are, you know, already 30, 40, 50 years old. Okay. And, and you were able to capture things like building and neighborhood characteristics in your analysis though, right? Yeah, we, we ran the, we ran the analysis both with and sort of the technical term using tracked fixed effects um, and without tracked fixed effects. So we did take neighborhood into account. We also took um, building level amenities um, into account as well, whether the, you know, the buildings had swimming pools or they had patios and porches. We looked at a number of other um, building level amenities and either the data wasn't sufficiently um, captured in the underlying data um, or there just weren't enough properties but the the ones that we that we looked at that um, were at least statistically significant was the presence of uh, swimming pools and then patios and porches were the were the sort of two um, structural amenities um, that we've incorporated and I think you know certainly thinking about sort of swimming pools particularly when you think about larger properties um, you know if a building has a swimming pool it probably has a number of other um, building level amenities as well so you can kind of use that on some degree to some degree as a proxy for um, you know, sort of additional building quality and features um, that wouldn't otherwise appear in the sort of the straight uh, transaction data. Andrew, you mentioned uh, one of the key points that you mentioned at the beginning was was a, some concern about loss of affordability uh, in these properties. So what are you seeing there so far? So one of the things, again, not sort of stemming from the data that we specifically looked at in part because it it ended uh, a number of years ago, but we're we're hearing um, from a number of our partners um, across the across the country, and, and you know, just folks in the affordable housing space uh, overall, is really the need to preserve um, the affordability of properties that are currently um, affordable to folks without any subsidy. So, the number of of properties that are um, subsidized affordable is only a, a small percentage of the overall stock that is sort of affordable to folks, um, you know, sort of at or below area median, certainly below um, 60 um, percent of area median. But um, the, what we're hearing, what we're seeing um, in a lot of places is that um, investors are coming in sort of identifying kind of these these purchasing opportunities uh, in neighborhoods that may be changing. Um, there we're seeing, you know, sort of just increased demand for rental overall. Um, we're, one of the things that we know is that renter incomes um, on the me at the median have risen not so much because there are sort of there was broad rising of uh, renter incomes overall. Um, or among people who've been renters for a long time, but because of the, the profile of renters, the demographics of renters has shifted, um, and there are now more higher income renters. For, for these are basically folks who historically had been homeowners, um, you know, sort of coming out of the 2007 housing crisis, um, you know, didn't get into home, you know, didn't go back into homeownership. Uh, other folks have delayed purchasing uh, for a number of reasons, and so you have this sort of core group of higher income renters who previously had been homeowners sort of helping to kind of shift that that midpoint uh, in uh, renter incomes. And so looking to capitalize on that growth in that segment of the market, um, there have been you know, a lot of investors coming in looking to buy up these older properties, you know, class B, C properties, things like that, um, and really trying to reposition them. You're not gonna get, you know, sort of, pure luxury coming out of it uh, the way you do from new construction, but in a lot of places, you know, looking to reposition these as, you know, sort of A minus near A properties um, is really enough to shift the market and 
kind of lose the the key affordability that's that's baked into these properties. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a, a delicate balancing act in a lot of ways because you still need to maintain the properties adequately, but it's very also difficult um, to do necessary rehab while still keeping an eye on affordability without um, looking for additional sources of subsidy. Uh, and so when you have, you know, sort of folks who are committed to affordability looking to um, acquire properties um, that are currently affordable and want to maintain that affordability, they may be competing with um, other potential buyers who are looking to raise rents and therefore believe they've got greater capacity to, um, you know, pay more for the property. Uh, and so that that tension is, is we're seeing playing out in a lot of places. That's one of the reasons why um, a number of, of nonprofits um, have started thinking about, um, you know, sort of portfolio level financing and other funds um, to allow for uh, quick acquisition of properties when they come on the market, because the, the fear is um, that once properties that are affordable today um, change hands, that affordability could be lost and it's not known how it would be gotten back. Um, and so there's a real effort to think about ways to ensure um, that properties that have historically been affordable, um, in part because of filtering, because of age uh, and the like, uh, remain affordable uh, going forward while also obviously maintaining you know, decent quality conditions as well. So I, I want to get into that a little bit further, but, but don't want to uh, leave off the table the other part uh, of lost affordability, which is just lost units uh, due to deterioration. Uh, how much of a concern is that uh, with these properties, and how would you rank that compared to uh, just repositioning of the properties? Is, is a, which is the greater threat? So the the data that I've seen is this Rand study from a number of years ago, which pegs um, the loss from deterioration at about three times what it is from uh, upgrading. Um, but you know the 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 market moves quickly, um, and I think now um, the perception, at least, is that um, the the risk from um, upgrading, repositioning is is greater. Um, that again may be skewed by where we sort of typically talk about these problems and where we see um, a lot of pressures on rents um, and pricing. You know, sort of top tier markets, the coasts, uh, etc. But um, the, the risk of loss um, in, you know, sort of second tier cities where you're not seeing the same necessarily the same levels of construction um, are also another place where um, threat of loss from upgrades uh, is, is real as well. So um, I think it's, you know, you have to have to be mindful on, on both ends. Um, the challenge also with properties that are really at risk of deterioration out the point of habitability um, is that the cost to just bring those kind of into decent repair um, can sometimes also threaten the affordability uh, as well, just because you know material costs are what they are, labor costs are what they are. Um, you know, even if you set aside any sort of profit motive, uh, it can sometimes just be too expensive to um, keep those properties um, in decent enough condition, uh, and so they're going to get lost just because the markets aren't strong enough um, and the, the tenant incomes aren't aren't there to uh, be able to just afford. Um, you know, sort of even modest rents um, rel that the, the cost of, of repairs would, would require. Uh, and so that's a real that's a real challenge. And it's one that I think, you know, we need to think about seriously and think about, you know, what can be done both on the, the financing side, but to some degree, it's also going to be an income question uh, as well, which kind of takes us 
beyond the bounds of, of just housing, um, but obviously is an important factor flowing into uh, the question of affordability. Looking back then at some of the higher cost markets, you know those those big markets where you're seeing the the threat from from repositioning. You mentioned a little bit some focus nonprofits are having. Uh, you know what else are you seeing as, as strategies to uh, combat uh, the loss of affordability? So in a number of markets, um, there are also sort of nonprofits. Um, some of the you know, sort of economic development agencies, the housing housing finance agencies and the like um, are sort of also doing outreach to landlords um, to think about ways to both um, kind of bring them into the system, make them aware of financing opportunities, as well as sort of upskilling um, and build, building landlord capacity um, to do kind of necessary maintenance um, to keep these properties in decent repair. Um, you know, obviously, when they can connect them to, to financing resources, to subsidy programs, um, you know, sometimes there's some success. Sometimes flip side is that landlords are kind of nervous about, you know, dealing too closely with, with government agencies. Um, and so it can be it can be a little bit of a challenge. But um, I think, you know, kind of getting more capacity uh, among landlords to do ongoing maintenance that I think is, is really important as well, because uh, that can kind of keep these properties from deteriorating past the point of habitability without requiring, you know, sort of large upfront one-time um, capital investments um, that would really be on the be beyond the capacity um, of a lot of these landlords to uh, to handle. Again, sort of thinking about the the nature of, of the the ownership, uh, particularly for these smaller properties, where you know so many of them are. Uh, individual investors or sort of, you know, I mean, even when they are kind of one-off LLCs, um, you know, they just aren't uh, really the, you know, kind of have the same financial capacity uh, as a large REIT, for example, to be able to do, um, you know, a full building repair. And so, you know, some of the strategies might also hinge on uh, systems by systems uh, repairs uh, and maintenance. So, you know, this year we do the windows, next year we do the elevator, the year after we do the HVAC. Um, as opposed to really kind of almost, you know, taking a building offline to do a deep, a deep retrofit um, or renovation, um, you know, those those more incremental kinds of changes are more likely, I think, um, to be able to help keep the the property affordable. Um, but again, it's 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 an ongoing challenge. Yeah, that that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because. And you, you would think that right if somebody just gets behind on maintenance, then it gets to a point where like, well, better just sell it. You know, it's too much to fix it up at this point. Probably better just sell it to somebody who's got a plan and we'll do it. Getting people ahead of that uh, seems like that makes a lot of sense to keep it affordable. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> yes, yes. No, I think I think that that's right. I think that that's right. And I think that um, I mean the other the other piece of this thinking about kind of the length of tenure of some of these owners. Um, you know, again, thinking specifically about the individual owners. Um, you know they may be thinking about estate planning and things like that. And so, you know, do they really want to deal with these properties over the long term, or if they sort of see an opportunity to kind of find a, find a buyer who's willing to kind of do, you know, all of that maintenance, but even just, you know, take over the operations, right? So they'd rather kind of get their check instead of handing the property down to their kids who may or may not want to have a hand in it. Um, you know, there seemed to be a lot of money looking to come into this sector. Um, and so, um, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, there's there's real risk of loss um, around affordability because the you know where you had the um, individual investor uh, I'm sorry the individual owner um, you know kind of really sort of 
managing and maintaining this with an eye towards uh, the long term as their their horizon investment horizon shortens. Um, the investors stepping in um, don't necessarily have the same connection to the property, to the community, to the neighborhood, um, and really might be looking to you know sort of maximize their their economic return. Completely understandably, um, but it's going to have um, you know an impact on the positioning of those properties in the market. That's really interesting on thinking about you know the changing structure of or or changing ownership and how even connection to community uh, is different and uh, goes you know well with uh, with everything that you found in your study. What, as you look forward, are there other areas of exploration that you've considered? Well, I think the understanding the sort of the financing needs of this sector is going to be really interesting and really important going forward as we keep an eye on affordability um, and a sort of understanding what the difference in capacity of different owners is, understanding what the financing needs are, um, both as a function of owner capacity as well as the stock itself. Uh, you've got you know a range of different property sizes, uh, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, across the country. And so do we look to see about doing entity-level finance um, across a portfolio? How large are those portfolios, you know, in terms of the the potential debt that they can take on across multiple properties? Um, What kind of, you know, tools are necessary to get those owners, uh, you know, up with enough capacity to take advantage of those tools uh, and then what's what's the right size of the, the financial instruments themselves right are you looking at you know sort of multi-million dollar loans are you looking at you know hundred thousand dollar loans um, tens of millions of dollars in loans it's it's not clear um, in terms of the, what the asset pricing might be across a portfolio or even these individual properties in terms of the the types of um, repairs and retrofits and things like that that are necessary to keep these properties both habitable and affordable um, over the long term. And so we're starting to, to dig in to understand um, the role of ownership in particular to understand you know, whether a portfolio level strategy might in fact uh, be able to lower uh, some of the underwriting costs, which in smaller properties you know, at a per unit basis are really um, very expensive. Uh, and so really thinking about how we can be more nimble in some of the financing that we're providing, but until we understand um, what the needs are in the sector, who the owners are to make sure that you've got a product that's both viable from a financial perspective, but also um, there's there's appetite for using those tools. Um, that's really, I think, the next area for for exploration. That that sounds like a lot of interesting work, and and your paper that um, that supports much of what you said here today. Uh, I'll give you a chance to speak to um, where people can find that, so that they can, um, you know, should they want to dig into the analytics of of everything that you've learned. Again, like a thirteen percent price differential um, before controlling for other factors, and about half of that. You know, still remaining after you've controlled for factors and the difference in price is a is a, is a big difference. Yes. Yeah, so the the paper is called "Why Are Small and Medium Multifamily Properties So Inexpensive?" Um, it's available online uh, at the Journal of Real Estate Finance and Economics. Um, and my co-authors on this um, are Brian Ann, uh, Raphael Bostic, uh, Anthony Orlando, and Seva Rodnansky, um, who've been uh, we've been working together on small multifamily uh, for for a number of years now. Um, both in, in, in this space, uh, done some work also on, on affordability, uh, or rather uh, loss of affordability potentially uh, in rural properties um, and a number of other uh, kind of interesting uh, explorations around ownership um, and sort of actually even just the, the technical challenges of cleaning some of the data around ownership um, we've, we've spent some time digging into as well. Um, 
but it's a it's an interesting area for exploration just given the fact that you know over half of all the rental properties in this country are in these small and medium-sized properties um, the fact that we don't know nearly enough about them um, is is you know potentially a concern when we think about the uh, the the risk of loss of affordability um, when if these properties sort of you know disappear from the from the housing stock uh, so Andrew thank you uh, thank you so much for being on the show today uh, a really interesting paper, really interesting discussion, and uh, I'm sure that our listeners will go off and read uh, in more detail, and uh, we look forward to having you on again. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.